You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Join with me in turning to the Gospel of Matthew, the 12th chapter, and the 43rd verse, Matthew chapter 12. Tonight we're looking at verses 43 through 45, Matthew chapter 12. We read beginning at verse 43. Our Lord said, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Let's ask our God's blessing on His Word tonight as we preach it. Lord, as we come to this text tonight, we are very much aware of our need for You, the inadequacy of any ability that is ours any ability explained by us, Lord, it would prove to be absolutely impotent. What we need as we declare your word is the blessing, the power, the working of your spirit. Everything will be vain apart from your blessing. And so we ask for your gracious assistance tonight, Lord. Would you be at work in my life, in our lives as we hear your word, as he goes forth this evening. Lord, you know the needs represented here better than we do. We may be mindful of certain things in our lives that we have recently been dealing with or things that are on our minds, questions that we have, but Lord, you know the end from the beginning. You know what you have in store for us and therefore you know what our needs are. And so would you, in your sovereign, perfect knowledge of your creatures, and your children. Work on our lives tonight so that we are blessed, corrected, encouraged, built up, stabilized, everything you know we need. We're always mindful of those with us or hearing us that don't know Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would save. We will be very careful to give you praise and thanks for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. The verses that we come to tonight are fascinating, aren't they? Very, very interesting. The first thing that strikes my mind as I look at these verses is the fact that we are being taken by our Lord into a realm that we would otherwise have no access to. I mean, what he describes is beyond human observation. This is not something we would know by the powers of perception that belong to humanity. This is something that only the Son of God could clue us in on. He's telling us about a demon that leaves its house. And if we wonder what its house is, he answers the question in the 45th verse when he says, Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that 
man becomes worse than the first. So the, the house is a man. The house is a person, human being. He tells us about a demon that leaves its house and wanders and then returns with friends, as it were. Seven more demons. And what the aftermath of that is. And so, so this is fascinating from the standpoint that we're being given information that we have no access to unless Jesus tells us. What is equally fascinating to my mind is how does this fit into the conversation? Our Lord has rebuked Pharisees, warning them about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He has enlarged His focus beyond just the Pharisees and the scribes and said that they represent an evil, unbelieving generation that seeks for signs. This is the same conversation. This is a continuation. How does this parable, that's what it is, a brief parable, but a parable that speaks of reality, how does this parable fit into the, to the conversation? You'll notice at the end of it in verse 45, he says that that is the way it will also be with this evil generation. So whatever the application is, is that we're meant to take away from these verses, it applies to the conversation he's having about an evil, unbelieving, sign-seeking generation. And so tonight we're going to consider all of that, how all of this connects together. We're going to think about lives that are reformed for the worse. The capacity that people have to be reformed, cleaned up, moralized, set in order for a time, but not set free. Reformed, but not for the better, for the worse. And so we think this evening about the ruin of reformation that doesn't represent the fruit of transformation. There's a kind of change that is the fruit of transformation. But there's a kind of reformation where there has been no transformation. And it's ruinous in the end. So the ruin of reformation that doesn't represent the fruit of transformation. Two main points tonight. The first one is this, the description of a demonic tragedy. The description of a demonic tragedy. As I said, this is a parable, but it speaks of something real. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. The fact that our Lord can talk about these things in such a a matter-of-fact way, as if these are just the most natural things in the world to know about, speaks of His unique identity. He knows about these things because He is the Lord over these things. He's already demonstrated that in His earthly ministry, His authority over the demons. 
He is the Lord of every realm. This is Yahweh come to earth. This is God with man. This is the one who formed the angels. This is the one who witnessed their fall. This is the one who assigned them their present realm and has control over their present activity. You remember the time we're going to read about in a moment when the demons say to Jesus, have you come to torment us before the time? They recognize He's in control of their fate. He is the one who will judge them in the end. He is the one who knows exactly how they operate. He knows their desires. He knows their behaviors. So so what He tells us, you can trust. You may not have experienced this. In fact, I hope you haven't. But there was a time in my Christian life when I would run into teachers, Bible teachers, revivalists, who thought themselves to be engaged in ministries of exorcism. In some cases, they would even ask questions of people they thought were demon-possessed. You know, in the name of Jesus, with the authority of Jesus, interviewing demons. It was madness. It was demonic in and of itself. I always thought to myself, even back then, how do you know they're telling you the truth? These are lying spirits. Even if you could interview one, how do you know you're getting the truth? And a lot of that sort of thing goes on in the charismatic movement, and a lot of that sort of thing even went on in sort of revivalistic Baptists. It was madness then, it's madness now. If you want accurate, truthful information about this realm, you're only going to find it in Scripture. And our Savior is giving us information about this realm, even as He gives this parable. Not only true to say that Jesus knows about the demons, the demons know about Jesus. Matthew 8, 28, And when He came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met Him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They're aware of a time that's coming where they will be locked away forever. They recognize Him as the Son of God, the one who's in charge of that time. And they're asking, why are you here already? Mark 1.23, and immediately there was in in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Isn't it ironic that the Pharisees accused Jesus of being in league with Satan when the kingdom of Satan identifies Jesus as the Son of God? Luke 4.41, And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. I mean, we only get a glimpse, just a portion of what Jesus accomplished on this earth in terms of earthly ministry and the Word of God. Can you imagine what it was like when many demons are being cast out of many people and as these demons come out, they're crying out, we know who you are. You are the Son of God. But He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that He was the Christ. 
What he describes here, we can only understand if we accept the fact that not every unbeliever is demonized. It is possible to be a lost man or woman and not have a demon. And we also must accept the fact, given this parable, that it's possible for someone to have a demon and for the demon to leave even though they have not been saved. So lost human beings who have demons, lost human beings who don't have demons, lost human beings who have demons for a time and then don't have demons. What our Lord describes requires that we understand that. I want to say to you that if you are born again, you cannot be demon-possessed. You cannot be demonized. The harassment that we know from the domain of darkness is external to us. It's not internal. 1 John 5.18 says, We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, speaking to the church as a whole, do you not know that you're a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? In another place, the Apostle Paul asks, what fellowship does Christ have with Belial? Dear ones, if we are the temple of the living God, if the Holy Spirit lives in God's people, and He does, you can be sure a demon's not there. The Spirit of God and demons don't share the same house. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You are God's possession. And so you're safe. Anyone who tries to tell a believer you can be demon-possessed or that you need some sort of demon deliverance ministry is lying to you. Something we need to recognize about about our Lord's earthly ministry is He healed people who were not saved. He delivered people from demons who were not saved. That is, not everyone who was healed trusted in Jesus as the Son of God. Not everyone who was delivered from demons trusted in Jesus as the Son of God. Many did, but many did not. And so in this parable... We're told about a man temporarily freed from a demon's harassment. John MacArthur commenting on this says this, We are not told by what means this unclean spirit went out of a man. It may be that the man, the man made a moral decision to forsake the sin in which the demon had entrapped him and that the demon no longer had control over the man. It may be that the man had been cleansed of the demon, but just as many people whom Jesus cleansed and healed did not trust in him for salvation, for whatever reason or by whatever means, the man was temporarily freed from the demon's presence and influence. I agree with that. So before we talk about the use of this parable, before we talk about the application of it, I just want to mention some observations in two realms. First of all, observations about the operation of demons. Observations about the operation of demons, because our Lord gives us some insight into this. One, this is easy, this is clear, I just want to say it, demons inhabit people. Demons inhabit people. We see that all over the gospel accounts, Jesus casting demons out of people. Second, 
the demons have individual characteristics. Every demon is not the same. They are fallen angels. Angels have personality, individuality, moral ability, reasoning ability. And just as you have sinful human beings who all belong to the domain of darkness, I'm talking now about unregenerate human beings, even though you have them all sinners, all belonging to the same domain, you still have varying manifestations, degrees of the manifestation of wickedness in individual lives. You've got a lost man who mows his neighbor's yard to help his neighbor. You've got a lost man who's a serial killer. Both are lost. Both belong to Satan in that sense, but they are not equally manifesting wickedness. And so it is in the, in the demonic realm. In fact, not only different personalities, but different types of strength. Mark chapter 9, verse 17 says, And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can. Don't you love that? If you can. All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This kind. There was a kind that the disciples of Jesus could cast out, but they could not help the boy. This was one of a different sort. I mention that because in this parable, notice that this demon that leaves this man, when it comes back, it not only brings additional demons, but those additional demons are described as being more, verse 45, more wicked than itself. The demon that once possessed this man is wicked, but the seven that come back with this demon are more wicked. More wicked. They inhabit people. They have individual characteristics. Something else that's clear in the parable, they find comfort 
in human habitation. This demon is described as leaving the man, and then verse 43, it passes through waterless places. This is a a figurative way of saying it's like it passed through a desert region. It wandered about in a way that it didn't like. It was seeking rest and doesn't find it. So that the demon finally says to itself, himself, I will return to my house from which I came. Seems clear that the demons find some sort of miserable comfort in taking up residence in physical creatures. When Jesus delivered the demoniacs, the gatherings of demons, remember, they requested to be sent into the herd of pigs. But it would seem they prefer human habitation because then their wickedness is more fully able to be expressed through the means of human personality. On display in the lives of people would be the wickedness of demons. Now, men and women have their own wickedness just due to the fall, just due to the presence of the unregenerate nature. We are sinners through and through before Jesus saved us. And even now, having been saved, we know the presence of the flesh. We know the indwelling sin we have to do battle with. But when you are in the flesh, when you belong to that realm of unregenerate humanity, you are wicked all on your own. Yet take a person and have them possessed by a demon or demons, and there are additional expressions of wickedness. Can I tell you something? You would agree, we are living in bizarre times right now. Our culture is full of bizarre things. When you see men dressed up like women, dancing around in provocative ways, in front of children, and there are parents who bring their children to these things and laugh and applaud, human wickedness is on display but the realm of demons is on display. When you have people who imagine themselves to be animals, dress up like it, behave like it, when you have people marring their own bodies due to what we call dysphoria, but a disease that is settled on the mind, you have human wickedness on display, yes, but you also have the realm of demons on display. False teaching is described as the doctrine of demons. Only eternity will reveal how much of what we're seeing in our culture right now was actually demonic activity through human personality. They find comfort in expressing their evil through human habitation. Fourth thing we note about demonic activity, they act in league with each other. There's a dark kingdom on display. There's an organization to the chaos. This demon returns, but not by himself. He returns with seven more, which also indicates you can have multiple demons inhabiting one life. And wherever that habitation is taking place, it produces bondage, madness, disorder, chaos, 
Our text indicates this because when the demon leaves, what happens to the man? Verse 44, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, what does it find? It finds it unoccupied. The man no longer has a demon. And as a result, it is swept. It is put in order. When the demon is present, there is disorder. When the demon returns, there's order. Reminding us that bondage, disorder, chaos is what the demons produce. You see that in Luke 8, 26 and following. The Bible says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. I mean, compulsive behaviors explained by demonic activity. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. I want to talk about the devastating effects of demonization, even when you're talking about unreasoning creatures. It resulted in a mass suicide of pigs as they run themselves down into the lake and they drown. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. The presence of demons, bondage, disorder, chaos, the absence of demons. And it seems in this case, salvation was present. There's a man sitting clothed and in his right mind. Observations about the operation of demons. Also, I want you to see with me some observations about human capacity. Observations about human capacity. Because what you find in this parable is that for human beings, reformation is possible. The demon leaves this man... In the parable, when it comes back, it finds the house, the man, swept and put in order. Lost people can reform their lives. Lost people, free of demons, can clean up. Clean up the house, clean up the life. Put things in order. Have a better life. Improve. 
reform is possible. But reform without regeneration is not real freedom. Because it's obvious, though this man had reformed, he was still wide open to the reentry of the demon and his friends. He had reformed, but he was not regenerate. He had reformed, but he didn't belong to the Lord. So that, and this is very important, our Lord says, the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. He was in a bad way when he had one. And the demon left, and he he reformed his life, and he cleaned things up, and he reordered things, but now he's in a worse condition because his reformation isn't regeneration. People have the capacity to reform, but the reformation that is not regeneration, is not the fruit of transformation, is in fact not freedom. And in the end, it doesn't represent anything good. Now, how is this meant to be applied? And why does Jesus include this at the end of this conversation with the Pharisees and the scribes about the unbelief of an evil generation? Our second point tonight is the application to a generational tragedy. The description of a demonic tragedy, now the application to a generational tragedy. You have a generation, in the case of the scribes and Pharisees and the people who met with Jesus, you have a generation that meets with God face to face. It meets with the fulfillment of revelation that God entrusted to a nation, to His people. Promise fulfilled. Hope realized. They met with the Messiah's forerunner, John the Baptist called them to repentance. They meet through the ministry of Jesus. They meet with a message that declares the way of freedom. And they meet with unprecedented, unrepeatable deliverances. I mean, things the world has never seen before, never seen since. A preview of the coming kingdom. Kingdom power. Kingdom Freedom, kingdom deliverances, deliverance from ignorance through the teaching of the Messiah. No man speaks like this man. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, this is what you've heard through the apostate religious leaders you've been given. This is what you've heard all your life, but this is the truth. They met with the way and the truth and the life. Deliverance from ignorance. Deliverance from sickness. The blind man whom Jesus healed said it rightly, John 9, 32, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone has opened the eyes of a man born blind. Deliverance from the demonic. And for a time, when John the Baptist is ministering and our Lord is in that three years of ministry, there's a sense of Wonder. More than once you read something to the effect of, and and all were in awe. There's a sense of amazement. There's a sense of, of of the reverence of God 
in situations where people are meeting with the power of God. And as a result of all of that, it is not wrong to say there was a reformation taking place in the nation. People coming out in droves for the baptism of John. Enormous crowds following Jesus around to hear him teach and to receive healings and to receive deliverances. But if that's all it is, if it's just religious fervor, if it's just human excitement, if it's a superficial external cleanup, and you don't take the next step, you don't embrace Jesus as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world, as the Messiah, the last state for such a generation will be worse than when the Messiah met with them. He met them in a state of bondage. We've talked about it before. I mean, Jesus would go into a city or a village, and the whole village would be healed. Everyone who had demons would be delivered. But if you don't go on to trust in Him as the Son of God, what kind of bondage will you be in when you have rejected your only hope? The end for them will be worse than the beginning. And that's why I think he puts this parable right where he does. He's saying to them, if you don't take that next step, if you don't see what these signs point to, if you don't embrace, if you keep asking for more signs and you don't embrace the truth of what has already been given to you, the only thing you will have experienced through all of this is an external cleanup and it will leave you in the end in ruins. How do we apply this? Well, let me ask you, do you realize that there is a kind of reform that leaves you worse in the end? I think one of the greatest indicators of the, of the spiritual poverty of the church of our time is the satisfaction of professing Christian parents in simply having moral children. If they say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. If they make good grades, if they're upstanding citizens, if they don't embarrass their parents, if they grow up, go off to school, get a degree, get a great job, earn a great living, get married, have children, don't blow their life up through immorality, you're satisfied. Do you understand if this man in the parable had been delivered from the demon for a lifetime so that his house remained swept, remained in order, and in fact it was unoccupied, when that man died, he'd be no better off. Parents, can I ask you, what are you aiming at in the lives of your children? Their morality or their salvation? And you can't produce their salvation. But you had better know it's the goal. What are you praying for? What are you laboring for? What are you teaching for? What are you modeling for? External 
cleanness or an internal transformation that only God can produce. Sully's testimony this morning was a blessing, wasn't it? It's a story of a young man who wanted to please his parents and he had a tender conscience. But thank God he had parents who kept teaching him the gospel so that the Lord in His kindness and mercy saved him. There's a difference. There's an eternal difference. Maybe there's somebody listening to me that your life is in a mess and you're taking steps to clean it up and you're trying hard to improve, wanting to be a better husband, wanting to be a better father, wanting to be a better mother, better wife, better friend, better human being, you might say. You just want to be a better human being. Do you have the Spirit of God? Have your sins been forgiven? Are you a new creation? Because if you clean your life up and it gets better, your marriage gets better, your family gets better, if you don't have Christ, you're going to depart this life and be lost forever. You realize there's a kind of reform that leaves you worse in the end. You see this in those who apostatize from the Christian faith, from the church. They profess to be Christians. And here's what they would say. I lived my life, some of them would say, I was a Christian. I was a born-again Christian. By the standard of the people who were around me, this is what I had embraced and this is how I lived. But now I'm deconstructing. And I learned I can be a good person without all of that. It's a sad condition, isn't it? It's a lying state that the person is living in. They were never born again. You can't deconstruct what God creates. If you're a new creation, you're a new creation for forever. No one is saved and then lost. So the people doing that kind of talk, they've never been saved. So what did they have? They had a kind of religion that had the form of godliness, but it had no power. And how many people are in our churches that have a form of godliness, but they have no power because they haven't met the Son of God in truth? 2 Peter 2.17 says these, speaking of false teachers, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Do you get that? They actually escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What are you describing, Peter? He's describing someone whose life is cleaned up superficially through gospel knowledge. You know about Jesus, you know about the gospel, you know about the Christian life, you know what the Bible teaches, and it produces a life where you're not as entangled 
But when you are overcome by those same things because you were never regenerate, you're in a worse condition than ever. In fact, he goes on to say, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Take a pig. Give it a bath. Put a bow on it. Let it rain. Open the door. And that pig is going right for the mud. Why? It's a pig. And there are people who say they know Jesus and their life has been cleaned up externally through the power of information, the power of the Word of God as it operates on minds and lives from an external point of view. But if they're not regenerate, what ends up happening is the true state of their spiritual condition is manifest as they run back to the sin that they still belong to. And then they reach a place where they think the gospel has no power. I tried that. When in fact they've never experienced what it really speaks of. 2 Timothy 3.1 says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But then it adds this, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. They're still religious. They still talk about Jesus. They have the appearance of godliness, but their life demonstrates they are unregenerate. Don't replace the gospel with moralism. Not as a parent, not for your own life. Recognize the difference. I'll finish with this. I can remember not long after the Lord had saved me. When the Lord first saves you, there's just this overwhelming sense of joy and the burden has been lifted. The burden of your sins. The knowledge that you're fully forgiven. The knowledge of the, of the wonderfulness of Jesus. You love Him. And then you begin to learn. You begin to read and you know doctrine in ways you didn't know it before. And you're able to, to voice it in ways you couldn't voice it before. And you know better how to pray. Not so childlike in your prayers. To the foundation, there's a depth that's being added. Nothing wrong with that. But I can remember a time, not too long, into my Christian journey, where I had more information and more power to express the Christian faith. But I was cold. And how the Lord used that in correction to show me that the Christian life is about abiding in Christ. If you're not careful, these things we're studying can almost become external to you, even for people who've been saved. 
And we have to go back to the root, to the source, to the stream from which the living waters flow, and that's Christ Himself. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. Seminary degree on your wall, some title before your name, give me Jesus. Give me Him. Better able to express doctrine than somebody else. Without Jesus, it's nothing. Maybe there's somebody hearing me tonight. You're on dangerous ground. You know these things. You can talk about these things. People associate you with these things. But your heart is cold. If you really know Jesus, repent. Humble yourself. Fall on your face. Go back to the beginning. Love your Lord sincerely. And in that way, walk in the truth. Because there's a kind of reform that's ruinous. It leaves you worse than when you began it. And that is reform without regeneration. The house gets cleaned up, but the demons come back. Let's pray. Lord, these are weighty things. Thank you for the insight you give us into these things that we would otherwise have no understanding of. I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would understand the necessity and the vital importance of just remaining close with our Savior that we would recognize the difference between external reform and internal transformation. And it would inform our minds and lives in every realm, including how we shepherd our own home. You've given us an understanding that should change the way not only that we we live, but the way that we teach. Thank You, Lord, that You've taken us to Yourself. And the evil one does not touch us. I pray for anyone hearing me tonight, Lord, who they know the form of godliness, but they don't know the power of it. What a miserable life it is to know religion, but not know Jesus. Oh, Lord, would you save them? Would you set them free? Would you humble their heart? Would you move in their life in such a way they would let go of everything they've been holding on to that stands between them and Christ? That they would just surrender and be rescued and be delivered forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.